Okay, all right. Okay, I think we're good. Romans 6, 1 to 11. Paul writes, starting in verse 1, he says, What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin, since a person who has died is freed from sin. If we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And so you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Uh, Samuel Took was an English reformer in the 19th century who came up with a radical new way to treat the mentally ill called the principles of moral treatment. Uh, at the start of the, the 18th century, the uh, clinically insane were typically viewed and treated as less than human. They were looked at as uh, sort of like wild animals who had uh, just completely lost their reason. They were not held morally responsible for anything they did because they weren't uh, considered to have any capacity for morality left in them. They were objects of ridicule for the public, uh, put into uniforms much like a prison, even kept in chains at times and other uh, just appalling conditions often subject to numerous torturous treatments, including whipping, beating, shocking, starvation, irritant chemicals, and prolonged isolation. This was the context that these principles of moral treatment were developed, which now sought to reform the treatment of the mentally ill. And this man, Samuel Took, he was a major player in advancing that movement. His, his contribution to all of this was this idea that, that the way to treat these people was not treating them as less than human, right? But rather by treating them the same as everyone else. And so rather than dressing them up like prisoners, he, he put normal clothes on them. Rather than beating them and torturing them, trying to, to force the illness out of them, he gave them jobs. He gave them uh, responsibility. He tried to give them a sense of, of right and wrong, of, of good and bad, of rewards and consequences. The patients, they were told that they're their treatment depended on their behavior, and in this sense, their, their moral autonomy was recognized. If they behaved well, they were, they were rewarded, and if they behaved poorly, there were minimal uses of restraints or instilling fear that they had to go through. And, and in doing all of this, <laughs> dressing them up as, as normal people, integrating them into a normal life, the goal was that nobody would even be able to tell that they were mentally ill, including themselves. That was the goal, <laughs> that by treating them like normal people, 
and making them look and behave like normal people, treating all of their external problems that people would really begin to think that they were normal people and maybe even they themselves would begin to believe they didn't have anything really wrong with them. The only problem with all of this was that it did nothing to address the essence of who and what they were. This is an extremely relevant idea for us to to think about during our time in the Word this morning, because as we keep working through the book of Romans and we come upon chapter 6, we encounter uh, one of the most prevalent, common, repeated questions that every single gospel-believing Christian encounters. You cannot believe in the free gift of the gospel without wrestling with this very question in our text this morning, which is if God's grace is so free and it's so deep, if God really saves wicked, sinful, rebellious men, not by anything they do, not by requiring that they they clean themselves up first, but by the absolutely free gift of grace through faith, then should we not continue in sin so that grace can abound all the more? In other words, don't we just get to do whatever we want now? (laughs) All my sin, past, present, and future, is swallowed up in Christ on the cross. That thing has been paid for. And so why not just do what I want and be happy? I'm going to paradise one day anyways. But what I want to suggest this morning is that this isn't actually the part of the question that gives us the most trouble. I think for the most part, while we all have probably uh, genuinely asked the question and maybe struggled to answer it at times, I think we can all safely agree that the answer to that question is no. No, we we should not continue in sin. We all know that. What we have real deeper issues with are the actual reasons why. Why should we not continue in sin? Why should you not indulge in the appetite of your sin, because hear me now, it's not enough to just do the right thing. You hear me now. (laughs) As Tim Keller says in his book, The Prodigal God, he says, it's a shocking message that careful obedience to God's law may actually serve as a strategy for rebelling against him. It's not good enough to just answer the question, no, the Bible's doctrine of salvation, what it says about how you're saved, does not just give you license to sin freely, and it's not good enough to just know what the Bible demands you do. We also have to understand how the Bible motivates those things. We have to understand what the logic of the Bible is so that we can present the commands of God in the same vein. Or else, we run the risk of doing nothing more than dressing sick people up in the prim and proper clothing of morality and self-dependence and self-righteousness that runs rampant in our churches and our own individual hearts and minds. Instead of living in victory over sin, we only compound upon the problem with our our fake morality and our outward obedience. And so what we're going to aim to answer and deal with this morning is not the question of should we continue in sin if the gospel is true. Paul answers that question immediately with an emphatic no. I don't think that that's the hard one for us this morning. The hard one is the rest of what Paul talks about in the following 10 verses. 
And it's this, why not? Because this is the one that we don't do well with. This is where our gospel can get distorted if we're not careful. This is where we struggle. The gospel does much more than just put nice clothes on sick people. It addresses the very essence of who and what you are, and it motivates you to obey Christ, not by just dressing yourself up in nice clothing, but by having you first consider the essence of who and what you are in Christ. Why should you not continue in sin? This is what we're going to look at. It's, it's two realities about our identity in Christ. Let me just give them to you up front. These two realities are this. First, that we've died with Christ in his death. And second, that we were raised with Christ into a new life to God. In Christ, we have both died to sin and the domain of sin, and we've been raised up to a new life in the domain of grace and righteousness. Those are the things we're going to talk about. So let's unpack what Paul says about those realities for us. The first thing Paul's going to talk about, this idea of why we should not continue in sin, is that we've died to the power of sin and death with Christ. Uh, This is another feature or... Uh, we could say another aspect maybe of our union with Christ in the same way that when, we, when we're united to Christ by faith, we, we receive all the benefits of salvation through him. We receive his righteousness, his, his relationship to the Father. All those benefits become ours by, by virtue of our union with Christ. Another thing that happens in our conversion is that our old self that was completely corrupted and enslaved to sin and death died with him in his death on the cross. Uh, just look down at our text this morning and, and see how this idea just dominates what Paul's saying. <laughs> in verse 3, Or are you unaware that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Verse 4, Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death. Verse 5, For if we have been joined with him in the likeness of his death. Verse 6, For we know that our old self was crucified with him. Verse 8, now if we died with Christ, and verse 11, so consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. Literally, in almost every single verse here in this passage is this idea uh, that we have died, but not just that we have died, that we have died with Christ. It's part of the mystery of our union with him, that we, that we died with him when he died, and we also were raised with him when he rose up out of the grave, and we'll, we'll talk more about uh, that as well, because those two realities, they go, they go hand in hand together. Uh, but for now, please just realize that if you've been united to Christ in faith, the spiritual reality up, about you is that you died with him in his death. The old man, <laughs> the old you, really did die that day. And, and, and the reason that this is so significant for this kind of overarching question, again, that we're dealing with of, of why we should not sin as a believer whose sin, again, past, present, and future, it's all been swallowed up with Christ on the cross, is that it's this old man, the old corrupted man in his nature, that's what was dominated and enslaved by sin and death. That's why you sinned in the first place, because he was enslaved to sin. You'll remember... In Romans 5, that the, the reality about ourselves outside of Christ is not just that we were sort of 
like morally neutral beings that sometimes or, or even a lot of times just did some bad things. It was that our entire existence, the essence of who and what we were, was evil and wicked and sinful. Sin, sin is your master outside of Christ. <laughs> it rules over you. Do you understand that? Because you have to, in order to understand Paul's logic here about, about now this side of the Christian life, because that old man that was enslaved to sin, he's dead. So should you continue in sin, the first reason we can answer no to that is because we've died to our sin with Christ. As verse 6 says, the body ruled by sin is now rendered powerless. So we may no longer be enslaved to sin. It has, it has no power over you anymore. You've died to it. There's two sort of aspects of this that are connected, but I think it's helpful to, to, to parse them here because they help us understand not only what we've been, been freed from, but also what we've been saved into on this side of salvation in Christ. The first is that you've been freed from the, the power of sin and death. You've been freed from the power of sin and death. Look at the way that sin is personified in this text. Uh, in verse 6, it, it talks about sin as uh, the object that we're enslaved to. It has, it has this power over us. It's what's uh, calling the shots in our life, so to speak. It's what we're bent towards. Uh, we, could, we could, I think, see this clearly in Genesis 4-7. Uh, you remember there, the Lord speaks these words to Cain. Uh, and he says, he says this, he says, Sin is crouching at the door. <laughs> its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. The problem that humanity has with that, though, is that it can't rule over sin. In fact, it's the other way around. Sin rules over us, and that's illustrated in the very next verse where immediately after the Lord says this, Cain says to his brother Abel, let's go to the field. And we all, we all know what happens from there. Sin is a dominant power over our lives. Uh, we also see this in the text right before ours at the end of Romans 5 that we've, uh, we've just spent several weeks going through if you've been here. If you just want to flip, back, flip the page back over for a quick second, uh, look down in verse 14 there in Romans 5. It talks there about how death reigns over all of humanity. Look in verse 17. It talks about how death reigned through the one man. And then again in verse 21, sin reigned in death. Sin is not described as just this sort of neutral thing that we get to choose whether or not we do. It's not a neutral thing at all. It's, it's powerful. And in God's sovereignty, sin now rules over all of humanity and over the sinful world that humanity now lives in, and the Bible often personifies it in that way. Uh, this kind of alludes to the maybe the second aspect of this that we could talk about, which is this idea of the, the actual dominion or the domain of sin that we're a part of. This is the more uh, positional idea of our problem in Adam and also again, on this side of salvation, our, our salvation in Christ. Sin is not just a powerful force or, or something that we do or don't do. In some sense, it's the entire existence that we belong to outside of Christ. Outside of Christ, we, 
We belonged to the domain and the dominion of sin. It's the world that Adam ushered in with his sin that is just dominated by sin and death, and that only brings condemnation. Uh, this is, of course, contrast, contrasted with this idea of the, the new life in Christ, right? That is reigned over not by sin and death, but by, by grace and righteousness. But that's only available in Christ. As long as we're in the world that Adam ushered in with his sin, we live in a world that is, that is tainted by sin and by death and destruction. This isn't, this isn't hard to see, friends. <laughs> you can look around anywhere and know that, that anything, anything, anything that is not as it should be, as God designed and intended it to be, or how it will be in the new heavens and the new earth, anything that does not match up to that standard and expectation is a product of sin. And it belongs to the domain of sin and death. And that's the domain that we all belong to outside of Christ. It's, it's the world that we live in. But part of the reason that Paul gives for why we should not continue sinning if we've been saved by God is that we've died to all of that. We have died to the power of sin and death. In our union with Christ, we've been transferred from death to life, from sin to to grace. We've been taken out of that old life so that we could be ushered into a new one. Uh, you may or may not remember a song uh, that was released back in 2008. It was called Dead and Gone. Uh, and it was, done, it was done by the great theologian named T.I. <laughs> now I use theologian uh, loosely here, okay? You're not going to find him in the same part of the library as John Calvin or Martin Luther. And uh, this isn't necessarily a song you're going to find in your hymn book or the worship music playlist on Apple Music, uh, whatever that is even is these days. T.I. is a hip-hop artist who I can't say with full confidence was even attempting to do sound theology here, but he did stumble onto some great theological truth in this song, I think. The premise of the song, it starts with him kind of, uh, he's recounting his, his past life uh, on, on the streets. He was unfortunate enough to have uh, witnessed his best friend be murdered, actually, in the streets that he was a part of at a young age, uh, that were dominated by, by pride and by violence. Um, in that world, small instances of, of aggression or rivalry, rivalry, they can quickly turn into tragedy, tragedy. And so what he's doing in the song is he's, he's attempting to, to bring out this reality that this is just how things went in the world that he used to belong to. Uh, there was a, a certain mentality that dominated the world he lived in. It's what he belonged to. It was the only life that he knew. But now, and this is where the song kind of takes a turn, he's living a new life now. <laughs> he's turned over a new Leaf. He's no longer involved in those things anymore. He doesn't live in that world anymore. That's not how he acts or thinks or what he gets involved in anymore. His life looks different. But here's the thing. There are times, moments, instances where he feels the tug to go back. You feel me on this? <laughs> There's moments when 
something happens and his, his old instincts kind of kicked in and he wants to go back to his old ways. He wants to, to handle those things the way he would have before, back in his old life. And this is what the entire song is all about. It's him explaining why he doesn't do that. Why he doesn't do things that way anymore. And his answer is a profound one. It's the title of the song, the theme of the chorus, the most iconic and memorable line of the whole song. It's his answer to that very question. And it's this, the old me is dead and gone. (laughs) He's dead and gone. That's his answer. T.I. isn't just saying he chooses to do good things to prove to himself or even other people that he's changed now. T.I. isn't saying, uh, man, somebody really helped me out. They helped me get on the straight and narrow. And and I want to spend the rest of my life repaying them for how much they've done for me. T.I. isn't trying to cloak himself in fake morality. T.I.'s reason for living a different kind of life now is that he's trying to live out a new identity. He's not saying, even though I'm that same dude, I'm just going to act differently. He's saying, I'm a whole new person now, and so I'm not going to live like the old one. And here's the thing, while this may be just sort of metaphorical for, for T.I., I don't know all of T.I.'s story, but it may just be kind of a metaphorical way uh, for him to, to explain his life, this is actually a real reality for every single person who is in Christ this morning. Do you hear me on that? Because it's literally the exact same answer Paul gives to the exact same question that he raises. When you feel the tug to go back to the old life, why don't you just go and appease it? And it's right here. (laughs) The old you is dead and gone. Please, please, (laughs) please understand this this morning. It's not just about the external things we do. If that's all that it is, if that's all that matters, and that's all that it's about, it's nothing more than putting nice clothes on sick people. It first has to be about the essence of who and what we are. And the only place that we can go to answer that question is in Christ. In Christ, you have died to your sin. You're a new person. So don't live like the old one. Friends, I can't overstate how massive this is for for all of life. For not only our our own personal obedience and holiness, but but how we relate to God, what we believe about ourselves and, and all of life, how we interact with unbelievers, how we interact with the world, how we interact with other Christians, how we parent our homes, how we approach our jobs. And unfortunately, I have to say, I think it's radically different than how we often approach and try to motivate and explain the need to follow Christ by doing what he commands us to do. I wonder how many of us this morning, if any, would say that the, the overwhelming thrust of their hearts and even, even their discipleship, when they think on the topic of obedience, is simply living out their new identity in Christ. 
too often it sounds like, well, we need to obey the Lord because he did so much to save us. He gave up everything, and so the least we could do to pay him back for that is to do what he says. This is what we call a debtor's ethic, friends, and it's a bad heart posture towards the Lord. We'll talk about how we had a huge debt of sin that needed paid and how Christ came back and he he paid for it for us freely on the cross, but then we'll spend our entire lives feeling like we have to now pay Jesus back for paying for our sin through our good works. And that becomes the motivation for obedience in our lives. Or or sometimes it's this, you're not going to be saved by anything you do because salvation is a free gift, We'll, we'll say that. But you better not keep acting like you did before or else it will be clear that you were never saved in the first place. Because justification always produces sanctification, right? And so good works, we'll we'll agree, they're not required for salvation, but there becomes a flavor of works righteousness in it when the dominant motivation towards obedience is now proving that you were ever saved in the first place through your good works. And these ways of thinking, they're so dangerous because they're, they're grounded in correct doctrinal truths that are faithful to what the Bible teaches. You hear me? But let me just say this. We have to speak the way the Bible speaks. Uh, we're, we're quick to point out and condemn false doctrine as we should be, but even in our doctrinal fidelity and our theological accuracy, there's a way in which we can misuse those right doctrines and still fall into error. You follow me? There's nothing wrong with saying we should be thankful to God for saving us or that we should live out of our positional righteousness in Christ, but let's be, let's be very careful to not misuse correct doctrinal teachings in a way that's unfaithful to the way the Bible talks because can I just say that when this really matters for your life, when you're, when you're in that moment when you're, when you're stuck, <laughs> when you want to sin, you feel the tug and the pull of the old man, the old life you belong to, reeling you back in. If you're not grounded and motivated to obedience for the reasons that the Bible gives you, I don't care how Christianized or, or highfalutin it sounds, none of those things are going to help you in that moment. They won't help you. <laughs> and to be honest, they'll probably just add to your problem because Here's the thing, even if you don't outwardly sin in that moment, what's the condition of your heart when those are the only things motivating you? Is your heart set on the truth of God's word and his character and the truth of the gospel? Are you obeying Jesus because you've died to your sin and Jesus Christ raised you back up into a new life that isn't enslaved to sin, but rather is enslaved to grace and righteousness that he offers you freely by faith? Is that why you're being obedient? Or are you obeying out of a bad heart, geared towards self-sufficiency and self-righteousness and a distortion of God's word and his character? The, the, irony, <laughs> the irony is so deep here. And that even in our doctrinal fidelity, if we misuse right doctrine and we use it in a way that the Bible doesn't, to try to to try to motivate obedience in a way that the Bible doesn't. That's actually part of the old man and the old life 
that needs put off. Are you with me on this? This is where this matters because sin runs deeper than just the outward action. It's a condition of your heart. And so don't just come to me with your, your good works and your outward actions. Tell me what you actually believe about those actions and give me the reasons why you're doing them. Any good work or obedient action that is coming from a, a posture of the heart other than complete faith in Christ and the free gift of the gospel, that, you, that you've died to your sin and a genuine desire to now live out your new identity in, it's nothing more than dressing bad people up in good clothes and expecting that to solve the problem. And it needs put off and done away with because not only have you died to your outward sinful actions, you've died to your sinful heart in your outward obedience as well. Not only have you died to your sinful actions, but also your sinful heart that would do outwardly obedient things for terribly unrighteous reasons. We don't have to pay God back for our salvation. We shouldn't look around and be motivated to do good things because we want to to prove to everyone around us that we're really saved. We don't have to live in fear that if we don't stay on the straight and narrow every moment of our lives, well, maybe it wasn't true of us. We have to look at what the Bible says is true of us. That we died to sin. And then we have to live like that's actually true. This is where our baptism becomes helpful for our Christian life because it's, it's the outward sign to us of the spiritual reality of who we now are in Christ. Notice how quickly Paul goes to this idea in our text. Should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? That's what we've been talking about. But that this, right after that, Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. Uh, There's a lot of um, conversation and debate around exactly... um, what happens at our baptism and, and who it's for that we don't, we don't have time to jump into today. Uh, at Mercy Hill, we believe that baptism is for believers only. And we believe that it's a symbol of our union with Christ and the spiritual reality that takes place when we're converted. Uh, we baptize by immersion where the, the, the whole body is dunked underwater and then subsequently lifted up out of the water. And it's a picture of this very reality that we're talking about this morning, that the old man has gone to the grave with Jesus in his death and has then been raised up with him into a new life. This is the, the, the new birth in the life of the believer that we talk about. Unfortunately, I think we oftentimes treat baptism as nothing more than just a weird sort of uh, ritual act that we do in our kind of churches or maybe just nothing more than uh, an act of obedience to something that we know we're just supposed to do. Or I think a lot of times we're just content with the sign of baptism itself, and we don't 
We don't ever really consider the greater reality that it's pointing us to. Uh, there's a 1929 uh, painting done by a man named Rene Magritte, probably not saying that right, but uh, called The Treachery of Images. And, and what it is, is uh, it's just a painting of a pipe. <laughs> it's a simple painting with a uh, sort of a tannish background and a, a, a black and brown pipe on it. That's all it is. But the, the pipe wasn't actually the, the significant part of the painting. The significant part of the painting were the words that he wrote underneath the pipe. Because underneath the pipe, he wrote these words in his French language that read, this is not a pipe. <laughs> this actually infuriated some people when he did it. If it wasn't a pipe, then what was it? But his, his point was actually a very simple one. It wasn't a pipe. It was a painting of a pipe. Now, we all hate those people, right? But what he was trying to do was make a distinction between the sign or the symbol uh, or the, the image of the pipe and the real thing. To look at the painting and say, that thing right there, that's a pipe, is to fundamentally miss the bigger reality of what a pipe actually is. Because it's a real object that has a use and a purpose. That painting is just an image of that object that points you to the reality of that greater thing. And much of the same can be said of our baptism. Too often we, we fail to consider that our baptism is not just something cool that we do or something fun to, to watch and to look at. It's pointing us to something much greater than itself. Namely, to the, the spiritual reality that when we come to faith in Christ, the old man dies with him forever. It, it's so much more than just something religious that we should do because Jesus commands it. Paul, Paul seems to talk about it here as, as much more than that. It's quite literally, every time we see it, a preaching of the gospel to us and a communication of our new identity in Jesus. Friends, the, the, the reason that it's so hard to live out our new identity in Christ and, and to consider ourselves as dead to sin is because sometimes we just don't see it. Is that just me this morning? Again, talking about this moment of sin, when you get to the moment where, where every fiber of your being wants to engage that desire and, and scratch that itch, how am I supposed to think about myself as being dead to sin in that moment? It don't feel dead. <laughs> I mean, goodness, is that just me this morning? In fact, Nothing feels more alive than that desire. That old me isn't dead and gone. He's right here talking to me. Paul says in that moment, when, you're, when your realities are somewhat distorted and, and you can't see it clearly, look at your baptism. Remember what it felt like. That water swallowing you up in a moment. It was real. And it's still real of you right now in this moment. That, that really happened. In the same way as you were immersed under the water, so did that wicked old man go to the grave. And he died with Christ. 
He's dead and gone, and you no longer belong to him. You now belong to Christ. And so live in that new reality. This leads right into the, the second point we want to make in how Paul answers this question, why should we not continue in sin? It's the second part of your baptism. Just as you were immersed and taken under the water, so were you raised up out of that water into a new life. We've been baptized with Christ into his death and our union with him, but we've also been raised up to a new life. Jesus doesn't just defeat sin and death. He doesn't just kill our old nature. He also gives us a completely new one. He ushers in a a completely new life, a new domain that is not governed by sin and death, but by grace and righteousness. And in the same way that the old man followed the orders of sin and death, the new man now lives under the power and reign of grace and righteousness. That's what Romans 5, 12 to 21 was all about, how, how Christ, he not only uh, defeats the problem of sin that Adam ushered in, but also how he creates a, a whole new life to participate in that isn't bound by sin's grip and where death no longer reigns. And it's just as prevalent of an idea in our passage as the death with Christ was because those two go hand in hand. As surely as Christ rose up from the grave after he died, every person who is united to him will be resurrected from the dead into a new life with him. In fact, that's the the very reason that you had to die with Christ in the first place, so that you could then be raised up to this new life. Look what Paul says in verse 4, Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that, so there's purpose here, just as Christ was raised from the dead by glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. Verse 5, For if we've been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And again in verse 8, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. Oftentimes we talk about these realities as if they're uh, progressive. And, and as if this is the process now of our Christian life where we keep trying to put off sin in the old man and then put on the new man who practices righteousness. Uh, but what we see here in Romans 6 is that Paul, Paul talks about those realities as one-time events accomplished for us in the work of Christ that became true of us the moment we come to him in faith for the very first time. That's certainly true that we don't experience those things perfectly now, and we're both called to put off the old man and put on the new, but we have to recognize two things here, that the tenses of the Christian life matter, and that the truth of our identity, who we are now and who and what we belong to, is different than what we might experience. The tenses of the Christian life matter. What do we, what do we mean by that? Well, we could say uh, the things that have happened determine what will happen in the future and should influence what we do in the here and now. The things that have happened determine what will happen in the future and should influence what we do in the here and now. What has happened? Well, we've already talked about it. We've died with Christ and we've been raised up with him into a new life. These are spiritual realities that are true of us in Christ. What's going to happen? Well, there's, there's going to be a greater, fully realized fruition of those realities one day when Christ comes back and he, he finishes his work in the world. There's a sense in which we've been raised from the dead and we will be raised from the dead. 
what's this future looking? We already have the new life that we can walk in in verse 4. But there's also a future reality that awaits us. That's as sure as Christ seated on his throne right now, which is that when he, when he comes back and he, he, he takes us all up with him, he's going to resurrect the dead who have believed in him. He's going to glorify us with him. It just means this. He's going to make us into the perfect, complete version of who we are in Christ right now in the new world that he's created. Sin and death will not only not have power over us, they won't even exist in our lives anymore. We'll worship God perfectly and enjoy a perfect communion with him. All of this happens at that future day of glorification. Oftentimes we find ourselves feeling like maybe maybe this isn't harsh enough. Or maybe it's not strict enough to, to truly keep us in line and on the straight path. I think a lot of times that, that kind of thinking, it comes from a, again, just a fundamental misunderstanding of this reality that we're talking about, which is that we're, we're a new creation. Paul's logic is not that we're going to make God less pleased with us if we sin or that there's a chance God is going to take away our salvation if we sin. His logic is that if you continue to sin after you've been united to Christ by faith, you are in essence trying to decreate something that he's created. You're a new creation, a, a whole new being in Christ, no longer enslaved to sin. And so to, to now go back into sin and try to live in the domain of sin once again is to act as if you can decreate God's creative act. How silly does that sound? <laughs> Imagine trying to live in a world um, as if Genesis 1 never happened. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't even make sense to us. We have, we have no category for that. We can't even imagine it. And that's exactly how ridiculous it should sound for us to keep sinning after we've been made a new creation. God has created you into something new. <laughs> and so live like it. That's Paul's logic. The real struggle for us, though, is that, is that this is all done by faith. This is why Paul says in verse 11, to consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. There's a, there's a consideration of yourself, an opinion about yourself and who you are that you have to have in order to get this right. And you can only have that consideration by faith. Why can you only have it by faith? Well, because oftentimes the truth about our, our identity is different than what we experience day by day, moment by moment. We could illustrate it like this. Imagine, imagine you live your entire life as a slave. You were born into it. It's all you've, it's all you've ever known. You have a, a harsh master. He shows you no love, no care. He de- just demands you do what he says, the way he says to do it. And if you don't, you're going to be beaten and bruised. You watch people die every day. There's, there's just this cloud of pain and of sorrow over all of your life until one day, and maybe later in life, around the age of, I don't know, 55. Just throwing that out there, 55 later in life. The law of the land changes. And nobody's allowed to own a slave anymore. Nobody can own a slave and nobody has to be one. All the slaves are now free men declared free. It's their new condition, their new identity. They no longer belong 
to their master. They're freed from his claim on their life, from his, his rule and his reign. In one single moment, all you ever knew is now completely eradicated. You have a new life. But you don't know what to do with it. You still want to wear the same raggedy clothes because it's what you're used to and you're comfortable in. And you still see that old master around town and all the same feelings of fear and anxiety, they, they creep into your heart. You can't enjoy your freedom because every moment you're worried that it wasn't, it wasn't a permanent reality, that any day it could be reversed, you could be sent back. In fact, you struggle to even make it on your own now. And you find yourself in this constant tension of so desperately wanting to go back to the harsh, violent, cruel conditions that you used to live under because it offers you something you don't have in this new life, in this world, comfort, ease, identity. You've lived 55 years as a slave and five minutes as a free man. All that's changed is the law of the land. Someone, someone you don't even know has declared you don't belong to that man anymore, but it hasn't changed anything about how you think of yourself or what you want to do because all you know is the life of a slave. And this is exactly how our Christian life works, friends. All that we know outside of Christ is slavery to sin. That's all we know. Sin calls the shots in our life. It, it steers the wheel and it puts its foot on the pedal, seeking to destroy us every moment. And when we come to faith in Christ, sin is then taken out of the driver's seat and we're removed from sin's power and authority on us and Christ sits down at the steering wheel because he now calls the shots. Grace and righteousness reign over us. We've been taken out of that domain of sin and death and placed into the dominion of grace. But friends, while all of that is true, uh, we know that experientially the old master is just right across the road, <laughs> still calling our name pleading with us to come back. And every single time that we answer its call and we go back and do what it says, it is because of this simple, simple fact. We don't believe the reality about who we are in Christ. We don't believe that we don't belong under its power. And, and, I, and I get it because Everything in our hearts at times would tell us that we still belong to sin and death. Everything in our hearts and our flesh at times wants to go back to the sin that held us captive, that we, that we craved, and if we're honest, that we still enjoy a lot sometimes. But hear me this morning, before it's a failure to keep the standard of what we've been, what we've been called to or, or meet the expectations of our parents or our spouse or our, our pastors. <laughs> it's first a violation of the very essence of what you've been made to in Christ. It's a violation of the life and the new domain that Christ ushered us into. Because what it says is, I don't belong to this new life you brought me into. I want to go back to the old one. <laughs> and what Paul is saying is you don't belong to that anymore. Location matters, friends. Location matters. And every single day that you wake up, the decision you have to, to make about yourself is not, what am I going to do today? It's not, am I going to sin or not sin? Am I going to obey or not obey? It's first this, 
where am I going to live? What identity am I going to put on? Am I going to live as if I belong to the domain of sin and death? Or am I going to live in Christ? Am I going to live as if I really did die with him and I really was raised from the dead with him and as if I really do belong to a new domain reigned by grace and righteousness? Because if not, even our best works of obedience are nothing more than just putting nice clothes on sick people and expecting that to be enough. Worship team, you can come up. We'll close with this. I had a, I had a friend um, who baptized two of his teenage sons a few weeks ago. Um, and as he was addressing the congregation before their baptism, he said that, uh, that they've, he, he and his wife, they've enjoyed, as they've just been talking their sons through what they're about to do, they've enjoyed um, sharing with their two boys one of their favorite quotes, which is this. There's more grace in Christ than there is sin in you. And then he said to everybody, location matters. And he turned to his son right next to him and he asked him one simple question. He said, where are you living, son? And his son responded with two simple words, in Christ. The question for all of us this morning as we, as we leave here, it's not first, what am I going to do? The question is not, am I going to Am I going to do that thing or am I not going to do it? The question for all of us is where are we going to live? And our prayer this morning is that we would all answer the same way in Christ. Let me pray and then we'll, we'll close in song here. Father, we thank you again for just your, your endless mercy and your grace to us, Lord. We confess that not only do we do terrible, wicked things, we also do really good things for terribly wicked reasons. And our problem oftentimes is much deeper than we even realize. We thank you that your grace covers all of that. But Lord, we also ask for grace that you expose those places in our hearts where maybe we just don't see it. Maybe we don't know some things we're doing are sinful, or maybe we don't see the condition of our heart. We ask that you would expose those things to us through your word, through the spirit, through other believers that were around. But Lord, not so that we would ever despair, but so that we would come back to you for mercy and help in our time of need. So that we would understand how deep and how wide your love really is for us. God, help us to live out our new identity in Christ in everything we do. We pray this thing in your name.